Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Let's hear now the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we come to you with a great topic this morning, a topic that there's no way anyone could do justice to. But Father, we pray that you might be with us today as we give attention to your word, that we might see a glimpse of the great love that you have for us your children, and that our lives might be changed forever because of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Lisa and I grew up in the uh, 60s and 70s, and there was a lot of talk about peace and love in those days. I always thought it was kind of a strange time to be growing up. Uh, I never felt completely comfortable with uh, the culture of our day. Um, I didn't really think that anything transcendent took place at Woodstock. Um, what can you say about a, uh, a, an era, a generation whose slogan was tune in, turn on, and drop out? Uh, these people are going to tell us something about love. Um, even the clothes were strange. Uh, I had myself, I'll admit, a, a pair of burgundy and white uh, velour bell-bottom plaid pants. And at the time, I thought they were so cool. I mean, if I was going out on a big date, I wanted to wear the plaid pants. Today, they hold the distinction of being the only pair of pants that I'm glad that I can no longer fit into. And then there was this pop anthem that was sung by the Fifth Dimension about a new age of peace and love. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, the age of Aquarius. Harmony and understanding, sympathy and trust abounding, no more falsehoods or derisions, golden living dreams of vision, mystic crystal revelation, and the mind's true liberation. Can I just state the obvious here? That was then and still is today a bunch of baloney. 
We've had assassinations. We've had a generation of abortion. We've had genocides around the world, AIDS, and 9-11. And all of this has happened, but the age of Aquarius never came. And it never will, at least not that way. If there's ever going to be an era of peace and love, it's not going to come through the stars or through the supposed goodness of human nature. It's going to come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going to come from the God who the Bible says is at the very core of His being and of His essence, love. So this morning, after talking about the attributes of God in previous messages, talking about the holiness of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, I would like to talk with you today about the love of God. Now you might think, well, there's not a whole lot new to talk about with the love of God. There's not a lot of need to talk about the love of God. This is not controversial. Nearly everybody, at least those who don't fly planes into skyscrapers, nearly everybody believes that God is a God of love. So why should we talk about it? Let me suggest two reasons. First of all, I think the word love itself is perhaps the most misused and abused word in the English language. The issue is not so much whether we believe that God is a God of love, but what kind of love does He have? Does He simply love everyone in in a sort of vague and general way? Does He love us because we're basically lovable and, and so He's responding to that? Or does He love us, not in a general way, but in a very specific way, as His children, as individuals, despite our sinful rebellion, despite the fact that, that as the Bible says, we were enemies of God, does He love us in spite of ourselves? Did He send His only Son to suffer and die on the cross for us? that we might be forgiven and be with Him forever. What kind of love? What, what do we mean when we say we believe in a God of love? Because I have a feeling that, that we can mean very different things by that statement. And then more to the point, we see this prayer of the Apostle Paul, this this lofty prayer as he's praying for the church, at least the church at Ephesus, I would argue he's praying for all Christians. And, uh, you know, this this is an incredible prayer, and we've talked a lot about prayer in the last year or two, and the prayers in the Bible uh, are generally much more substantive, much much, uh, much more uh, upward and outward and less inward than the prayers that we pray. And so when Paul thinks about what his prayer is for the, for the Christians, for the, for the believers of his day, he says, 
I bow my knees before the Father. And I pray that that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, to comprehend something that's really hard, if not impossible, to comprehend. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He prayed for the believers that they would come to understand the surpassing love of God. This was vital for Paul. If you're going to be the kind of Christian that God wants you to be, if you're going to have the kind of power, spiritual power in your life, then you need to understand something about God that most people never see. And that is the surpassing nature of his love. In J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he has this to say about the love of God as he begins his discussion of the topic. Our theme will lead us as deep into the mystery of God's nature as man can go. Deeper than any of our previous studies have taken us. When we looked at God's wisdom, we saw something of his mind. When we thought of his power, we saw something of his hand and his arm. When we considered his word, we learned about his mouth. But now, contemplating his love, We are to look into his heart. We shall stand on holy ground. We need the grace of reverence that we may tread it without sin. God is a God of love, but what kind of love? What kind of love does God have? First of all, we see in Scripture that it is an infinite love. Now, I can't give you an exact reference for infinite. So perhaps you would be satisfied with the word immeasurable. It is a boundless love. It is a limitless love. It is a surpassing love. To me, all those things add together to say it's an infinite love. You can't measure the love of God. Ephesians 2 4 and 5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses. It's not only how great his love was, but it was the occasion when he loved us, when, when we were dead in our trespasses. And so as we read in our text, Paul's prayer was that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Knowledge is a great thing. Uh, Knowledge is uh, um, something we really really appreciate as Presbyterians. It's one of the reasons why I ended up being a 
a Presbyterian. I had visited other churches. And I, I was trying to find the place that was right for me. And, and what I particularly liked, one of the things I really liked about the Reformed faith was when I had questions, I found that there were, there were Reformed thinkers and theologians and pastors and writers who had wrestled with those same questions. And they had wrestled with the, not only the easy parts of Scripture, but the, the difficult parts of Scripture. And, and they had answers. They had answers. They, I didn't always fully understand the answers, but I, I understood that they were biblical. And so I value knowledge, and, and as a tradition, we value knowledge. But the Scripture is also very clear. Love surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ is something that we can't put into words. Because language fails us. In fact, when they wrote the New Testament, when, when God, by the Holy Spirit, inspired the, the, uh, the apostles to record what they had seen and what they had heard and, and to record the, the New Testament, they, they, they couldn't use any of the words for love that were commonly used in the Greek language. Phileo, eros, there were others. None of them seemed to fit. None of them seemed to describe this surpassing love of God. And so they either coined a new word or more likely they took a word that was rather obscure and, and you hardly ever find it before the New Testament, agape. And they invested it with this new meaning, with this lofty meaning. And it... And it it basically takes on a whole new meaning in the New Testament because there wasn't a word that would really capture what God wanted to say when he said that he, he loved us because of the great love with which he loved us. It's agape love. It's God's love. It's unconditional love. And we also need to be careful to point out at this point that the God of the New Testament is, same, is the same as the God of the Old Testament. He didn't change as many people believe. Many people believe that he was a God of wrath and vengeance in the Old Testament, but, but that he somehow evolved or matured into a God of love in the New Testament. But the scripture is very clear, first of all, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But, but when you go to the Old Testament and God reveals himself to uh, Moses, what does he say as he, as he passes in front of Moses and, 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 and he cries out? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness abounding in love, surpassing love, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament because it's rooted in the very nature of God. He is a God of infinite love. There's a hymn that captures this well, and in the first verse it says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast unmeasured, boundless, free. 
rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Do you believe that? That the God of the Bible, the God that we serve, is a God whose love is, is, is vast. It is unmeasured. It is boundless. It is free. It is infinite. Because that's who he is. And that's how he loves his children. And secondly, the kind of love that God has for us is a faithful love. It's a faithful love. And so very often we find it, it, it paired with a, a description of God's love uh, uh, also a statement about his faithfulness and his steadfastness, or it'll say his steadfast love. Sometimes it mentions his covenant. And so in Deuteronomy 7, we read these words. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He, he keeps covenant. He's a faithful God. He keeps his promise. You know, after all, what, what kind of God would, would he be? If, if he just had great feelings of love toward us, uh, that came and went, and uh, you couldn't count on him. You couldn't count on him in a time of trial. You couldn't count on him in the hard times in your life. It was, it was just kind of an emotional thing. No, no, he, he's a faithful God who keeps his promises, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And so at the dedication of the temple, Solomon says virtually the same thing. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants. He's a faithful God. His love is faithful. His promises are true. And so when he says, when he says that uh, God sent his only son, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. That's a promise you can count on. That's not just a nice statement. Those are, just not, those are not just nice words. It's a promise. He's a covenant-keeping God. His love is steadfast. One of the most life-changing concepts that I've ever come to understand is that real love is not primarily an emotion. Now, there are times when we're going to have powerful feelings of love. When young couples 
fall in love, we say. Or young parents have children and they hand you that little baby in the hospital. You're flooded with emotions. And, 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 and it just, you just feel like you're walking on air. But uh, scientists understand these feelings and, 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 and understand that, that these feelings of well-being, these feelings of love, uh, ultimately are caused by chemicals in our brain. And so one doctor writes, the sweaty palms and pounding heart of infatuation are caused by higher than normal levels of norepinephrine. Meanwhile, the high of being in love is due to a rush of phenyl ethyl something. <laughs> I don't know who makes up these names. I really don't. And dopamine. All is not lost, though. Once the honeymoon is over, lasting love confers chemical benefits in the form of stabilized production of serotonin and oxytocin. You know, we... Our culture celebrates so much this idea of falling in love and, and movies are about people falling in love and pop songs are about people falling in love. And, and what they're really singing about is chemicals in the brain. Chemicals that don't last. I mean, you can't stay at that high forever. Basically, I think one study said 18 to 24 months, that's about as long as you stay in that altered state. You know, and, 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 and then uh, New Balance comes in, and uh, so is love just a, a matter of emotion caused by brain chemicals? But you see, God is a spirit. He doesn't have brain chemicals. What he has is a covenant love, a steadfast love that does not change over time. He loved us before the foundation of the world. He loved us after the fall. He loves you in the midst of your sin and rebellion, in the good times, in the bad times, because He's a faithful God. And His love is steadfast, and His love is true. People fall out of love, and people will let you down. God never will. He is a faithful God who loves us with a steadfast love. And so, the writer of the same hymn says, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth, changeth never, nevermore. How he watches o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watches, watcheth o'er them from the throne. What kind of love does God have? It's a faithful love. It's a love that, that doesn't change. It's a love you can count on. It's a love you can bank on. It's a love you can build your life on. And whether you feel it or not, it's there. Because He is a faithful God. 
And then thirdly, God's love is a sacrificial love. It's a sacrificial love. God loved the world. He so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's a sacrificial love. Maybe all real love is sacrificial. You know, it's one thing to to have that experience of of being in love and that high of being in love. But I tell you where you really see love lived out, where you really see love lived out, is, is when in a marriage, for instance, a husband stands by his wife, in times of sickness, in times of trial. There's, you know, there's a great song out on the country, uh, uh, on the country music now about a, a woman who's going through, uh, a woman who's experiencing breast cancer. And uh, I can't, I can't give you the lyrics, I just thought of it right now, but, uh, but, This woman says, you know, her husband stood by her when, when she got the bad news. And, and he stood by her, you know, when she had to have the surgery. And he stood by her when she didn't look the way she used to look. That's love. That's love. And we've seen an example of that and more in this church. With Husbands who stood by their wives. Wives who stood by their husbands. Sacrificed greatly. To keep their promise. In sickness and in health. In plenty and in want. In joy and in sorrow. As long as we both shall live. The greatest proof of God's love for us is that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. James Montgomery Boyce writes, The love of God is seen in its fullness only at the cross of Jesus Christ. The intimations of God's love in creation and providence are somewhat ambiguous. There are earthquakes as well as beautiful sunsets, cancer and other forms of sickness as well as health. Only at the cross does God show his love fully and without ambiguity. Only after we have come to appreciate the meaning of the cross can we appreciate the love behind it. Seeing this, Augustine once called the cross a pulpit, a pulpit from which Christ preached God's love to the world. 
God's love for us is a sacrificial love. It didn't come cheap. It, it, it required the greatest of sacrifices. God gave His only Son. Christ suffered and died on the cross, not only physically, but spiritually. He suffered as He took on the wrath of God and, and, and the, the penalty for our sins. He sacrificed for those He loved so much. When you talk about the love of God, what you believe about the cross makes all the difference in the world. Because I think a lot of people, when they, when they say, well, I believe in, in a God who's a God of love, you know, what they really mean by that is God is kind of a cross between Santa Claus and Superman. You know, he's, he's kind of a, a jolly guy up there, and he, he wants everybody to be happy, and he gives gifts out to us, and... And, and he's also powerful, so he can swoop in and uh, rescue us when we need him. He's kind of a, kind of a cross between Santa Claus and, and Superman. Or, or perhaps, if you look into the Eastern tradition, if you want a symbol, you know, if, when you go into the Chinese restaurant, there's that statue of, of the, uh, uh, the laughing or the smiling Buddha. Actually, it's Budai, I think. And, and he's smiling, and, and he's enjoying life, and, and he wants everybody to be happy. But you see, if you want to see, if you want to see the love of God, the God of the Bible on display, what you have to look at is the cross. What you have to look at is the cross, because that's where you see the love of God. When you see the Son of God beaten, bloody, nailed to the cross, crown of thorns on his head, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's where you see the love of God. That's where you see the love of God. So Romans 5, 7, and 8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again in 1 John chapter 4, we read, God is love. And a lot of people say, well, God is love. The Bible says God is love. Look at the context in which the Bible says God is love. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. You know, you might just memorize that, and the next time somebody says to you, well, I believe that God is a God of love, you say, I do too. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God, that paid the penalty for us. In this the love of God is demonstrated. So here's the dilemma. Here's the question. 
Do you believe, ultimately, that God loves us because we're basically lovable people? Or does He love unlovable people, sinful people, fallen people, rebellious people, indifferent people? Does He love us not because we're lovable, but because He, at the very core of His being, is so loving, infinitely loving. What about you? What about you this morning? If you're saying, well, I, I, I didn't understand that's what, 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 what the love of God meant. And, 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 and you're saying, I realize now that I don't have to pretend with God. God knows everything about me. I don't have to put on a face, nor can I put on a face with God. God loves me. Christ died on the cross for me while I was still a sinner. I don't have to clean up my act in order to to gain the love of God. He loved me in the midst of my sin. He calls me to repent and to turn from my sin, but, but He loved me even while I was a sinner. If you're discovering that this morning for the first time, then ask Christ to be your Savior. Ask Christ to be your Lord, to forgive you of your sins, because you've come to understand a glimpse of the love of God, the real love of God. Or maybe, maybe you're a believer, and I've been here, And you've suffered some setback, some loss, some tragedy, some hardship. And you're going, I just, I don't know where God was in this. I I don't know how God could have let me go through that. And, 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 And you cling as tight as you can to Romans 8, 28. And you say, I believe that God works in all things. For the good of those who love the Lord. But I'm not seeing it yet. Or even if I'm seeing it, it, I just still don't get it. I don't get it. I don't see how God could have let me go through that. First of all, I want you to know that I feel for your loss because I've been there. I have been there. But the only answer I know of is you've got to look at the cross. And you've got to say, I don't know the specifics, maybe, of why God let this happen or why God took me through this. Maybe one day I will. But I do know that God loves me because he's a God who sent his only son. And if he didn't withhold his only son, if he he gave his son to sinners that they might be saved, he must love me. There must be a reason. And then you come to the place where Job was. And you say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him.
because he's a loving God. And then finally, God's love is an eternal love. We've already hinted at this when we said his love was faithful and it was steadfast. But then we take it to a whole new level because God's love is an eternal love. From eternity past to eternity in the future, he loves his people. And so Paul writes to Christians who were experiencing persecution to Christians who were watching some of their number be stoned, some of their number be um, martyred in ways that I, I can't describe this morning. He says in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, and that's what they felt like many times, the early Christians. That's what they felt like many times through the centuries. Some people are all worried about the great tribulation. Folks, there have been tribulations and tribulations and tribulations throughout the history of the world. And there are tribulations yet to come. And, uh, you know, all who seek to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. But Paul says, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not life. Not death, not angels, not demons, not anything in the past, not anything in the future is going to separate us from the love of God. He has loved us with an everlasting love, a steadfast love, a faithful love that will continue for all eternity. And so he writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. As the hymn writer Continues in his final verse. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Love of every love the best. Tis an ocean full of blessing. Tis a haven giving rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory. For it lifts me up to thee. What kind of love? does God have for us? It's not because we're lovable. 
He loved us in spite of the fact that we're sinners with a love that's infinite, a love that's faithful, a love that's sacrificed more than anyone has ever sacrificed before or since, and a love that's eternal. 